Good afternoon. First of all, I'd like to thank all of you for joining us. And also I'd like to thank Cheston American College of Chess Physician for arranging this webinar. It's a series of the webinar which is happening every few weeks to address the important issue as we navigate through the COVID-19. We all know that when it started last year, uh, early in the year, we felt it, it would be a very short term and we probably will be over with that. Going into it for like 15 months, we still are nowhere towards our end. We still have a long way to go. We keep on seeing the light in the beginning uh, and then, you know, it kind of fade away when the uh, cases started going in from the China to France to uh, California and then New York, and then uh, it has started going all over the world. We saw the science making it the advancement at the fastest pace, whether it was uh, the randomized control trial, trying to validate, prove or disprove any medication, or we saw the science coming up with the vaccine in the record time. We saw vaccines after vaccine coming in, and then we also saw some challenges related to the vaccine. So in this, we are going to deal with challenges to recovery, COVID-19 and beyond. We'll try to specifically focus on physician practices. We'll try to talk about the travel, the medical conference, and some anxiety and post-traumatic disorder. Uh, first of all, I'd like to welcome my panelists. We have an excellent panelist, Dr. Humayun Anjum. He's a chair for practice operation. And Dr. Deep Ramachandran, he's a vice chair for practice operation. I'm Dr. Salim Sarani. I serve as their gen clinical professor at Texas A&M College of uh, Medicine, as well as College of Pharmacy. I also serve as an ex officio for practice operation and member for clinical pulmonary network. So I'll pass to Dr. Humayun Anjum to introduce himself. Thank you, Dr. Sarani. And uh, once again, uh, welcome everybody. Um, I would just take a brief moment, introduce myself. Currently, I am a pulmonary and critical care practicing physician at uh, Baylor Scott and White in uh, Dallas. Um, just a few months ago, um, um, for the last five or six years, I've been involved in uh, teaching. I was in Corpus Christi, uh, Texas with uh, the HCA uh, graduate medical education program. And I served on the faculty for the pulmonary and critical care fellowship, as well as uh, core faculty for the internal medicine department. Uh, and I've been serving as the chair for practice operations since last year, uh, been a member of this committee, started my career thanks to uh, some of my mentors uh, very early after my fellowship and been very actively involved with CHEST uh, since then. So once again, thank you for joining and hopefully uh, this is a good session for everybody. Thank you, Dr. Anjum and uh, Dr. Deep Ramachandran. Hey, thanks uh, for the intro. My name's uh, Deep Ramachandran. I'm a pulmonary critical care sleep doc. Um, I am the vice chair for the uh, practice uh, operations uh, steering, network steering committee. Uh, I am a uh, pulmonary critical care sleep doc and uh, I am uh, currently working uh, at uh, Sleep Doc Direct, which is a uh, online telehealth uh, sleep business uh, that uh, that I have created, um, and I'm doing primarily uh, uh, telehealth. Uh, and I also do uh, pulmonary ICU uh, medicine as well. Uh, so it's great to be here with all of you. Thank you, Dr. Ramachandran. Uh, one thing we'll do is that uh, as we go along, if you have any question and answer, you can put it in Q&A box so that we can try to address as many questions as possible. 
what we have done is we have uh, compiled few questions which we have received uh, from the uh, folks who have registered and try to lump into different sections. And then once we are done with those questions, we'll still try to take as many questions you have and try to answer and uh, relieve all the uh, anxiety and create a facts and no fears. So one of the thing is what, uh, what we are seeing in the world is uh, uh, after the COVID came in, we start seeing variant, we start seeing the British variant B117, then we saw the South African variant, the Brazilian variant, then we have a California variant and we have a double variant in India. So my question is to Dr. Anjum, can you tell about the different variant which we are seeing it and in globally and what would be the implications of the uh, those variant and how effective our vaccine would be or one vaccine is better than the other uh, thank you dr sarani so i think it's interesting because as you mentioned earlier on that we were seeing light at the end of the tunnel and we were like you know things are going to be back to normal we'll be traveling again we'll be doing you know whatever we did before this pandemic era and uh, interestingly enough, these variants hit, which is not unexpected because, you know, with the RNA viruses, as we all know, the genetic mutations, as we call them, are very common. And the same thing applies to the influenza virus. Uh, so this was not surprising, but again, you know, uh, something that is concerning. And they've been emerging all around the world. Uh, we've been seeing them in the U.S. as well. Um, now... In the U.S., routinely, these uh, you know variations uh, are monitored through uh, uh, sequence-based surveillance, some of the laboratory studies and uh, epidemiological investigations, and they have developed an uh, interagency in the U.S. that have developed a scheme uh, for these variants, and they've broken down these variants into three uh, major uh, uh, variants. Number one being what we call as a VOI variant of interest. Number two are the variants of concerns. And those were the ones that you had, I think, alluded to uh, coming from different areas of the world. And then there are uh, variants of high consequence, which again, we know are, can be very uh, dangerous for that matter. Now, the, uh, the implications um, of these variants um, are, I think, threefold, if you look into it. Number one, uh, are these variants more contagious? Number two, can they cause severe disease as compared to what we have seen before? And number three, being the most important thing is that if these variants are different, then do we change our management uh, as to how do we take care of these patients in the hospital or otherwise? And are the vaccination gonna be effective uh, for these variants. So uh, some of the variants which are concerning at this time, uh, as you had mentioned again, were B117, B1351, uh, which was a South African variant, uh, uh, P1, which came from Brazil, uh, B1427 and 429, which are the Californian variants. And these have been the variants that are being studied mostly right now. Uh, we again, don't have a clear answer as to what are we going to see with these variants? Uh, we know one thing for sure that these variants are definitely more contagious because we've seen that people carry these viruses in their mouth and in their nares, and these uh, variants are definitely more contagious. So yes, the spread is going to be more, but again, we're hoping that the vaccination is effective. Uh, 
um, as you had uh, asked if, if vaccination is going to be effective, up till now, we know that these variants have been accounted for in most of the vaccinations. And there is no data to suggest that one vaccine is uh, better than the other. Of course, there's some differences, as we know, in the effectiveness of some of the vaccines. Uh, but again, I think the data is not very clear as to how this would change the way uh, we would manage the patients. But one thing is for sure that we have to be very careful as these viruses, uh, especially these variants, are definitely more contagious. Um, so these social distancing measures and, uh, you know, implementing a widespread uh, a vaccination strategy will always be of uh, great importance, I think. Thank you, Dr. Anjum, for a very uh, explicit and detailed answer. One of the key thing is that, yes, the variants are there. Second most important point is the vaccines are working and we need to get the uh, vaccine taken. The third thing is the lot of the, uh, the vaccine makers are also monitoring the variant and they're trying to come up with the, uh, even if needed, if they feel that it becomes a area of concern where the current vaccine may not protect, then they're also able to develop a, a booster vaccine which can address those issues. So at least uh, there is a good thing uh, at the uh, light at the end of the tunnel, and everyone should try to get the vaccine as soon as we can get it. Fortunately, uh, we are able to have more vaccine available as the day goes by. Uh, Dr. Anjum, I have another question for you, which came from the viewer, uh, which is, uh, is it safe to go to a restaurant and gym? We have been kind of getting bored uh, being in the hospital, um, being in the home, and trying to just uh, get a Grubhub and uh, order uh, delivery done. Uh, when can we safely go to the restaurant? When can we safely go to gym? Because gym was classified as a high-risk area. Absolutely. And uh, I think we, all of us uh, share the same uh, feeling of being frustrated and not being able to do these things. Um, I, I think, again, you know, um, unfortunately, nobody has a clear-cut answer as to what would be the time where you can say it can be done safely. But again, uh, I think as we have progressed through this pandemic, especially uh, with all the uh, vaccinations coming out, I think uh, we still have hope. Um, uh, once again, you know, April 19th, they're saying that uh, all the adults in the U.S. would be eligible to get the vaccination. So I think uh, if about 75, 80 percent of the population gets vaccinated, herd immunity starts building up and uh, we can hope that uh, we can come to an end with this pandemic. Um, in terms of the, I think, restaurants or public gatherings, it is very important to keep enforcing the, the physical distancing measures, making sure that the restaurant that you're going to has uh, uh, good ventilation strategies, uh, preferably if they have outdoor seating, uh, then make use of that and uh, sit outside, um, making sure that all the disinfection uh, uh, you know, uh, measures are taken, uh, making sure that everybody is wearing a mask, employees, as well as, uh, uh, you know, people who are visiting that restaurant, uh, keeping that, uh, you know, uh, six feet distance is important. Uh, so I think just the common things that we've been doing throughout this pandemic will be important to ensure the safety. Um, in terms of the gym, it becomes a little tricky. Um, you know, the, the advice is that if you're involved in uh, high intensity training, then probably it's not a good idea because 
those are the things that you are very close to each other. Um, uh, again, you know, equipment such as uh, yoga mats and other things which are very hard to clean is not advisable. So if you want to be involved in those sort of activities, it's preferable that you do it at home or somewhere else. Um, if, you know, you're going to the gym and you're using some of the gym equipment, making sure that you sanitize it, disinfect it, let it be there for two minutes, uh, making sure that you wear your mask. Again, you know, six feet distance is important and making sure uh, that you take some of the measures that we routinely did not take before, um, such as, you know, I was talking to my friend, so he goes to the gym. Um, he's, you know, been a, a gym lover. It's very hard for him to stay at home, but, you know, there's so many new things that have come out and I think they've, uh, uh, like virtual training is there these days. So people are making use of that. There's Peloton, uh, some other uh, gym equipment that people are getting at home, getting those fitness trainers uh, virtually and trying to do that. Um, um, but he, he likes to go to the gym. So he's like, I'm going to go, but he's taking all the measures. So he tries to, before he would go from work, use the locker room. So one thing that he's done is he doesn't go to the locker room. So he's not very close to people. He, you know, changes his clothes, goes over there, spend as less time as possible. Just go there, do your stuff, get out of there, sanitize your hand, come home, change your clothes quickly before making any encounters with your family. So I think just the common things that we've been practicing all along, we still need to enforce those things. Uh, thank you, Dr. Anjum. I think uh, uh, going in the same direction, but moving forward, I think when the pandemic came in, uh, the community transmission was very high. We were going in uh, and seeing the patient uh, by the phone or by the FaceTime or any, uh, not really the FaceTime, but the protected uh, visual uh, telehealth. So I think uh, Dr. Ramchandran, has been kind of doing a lot of it. Uh, when is the best time to go from transition from telehealth and going to an in-person visit? Uh, when is the safe time? And what do you think, Dr. Deep? Uh, so that's a good question. Um, so I think uh, it's important to think about safety in sort of this sort of relative spectrum. Uh, so there's no such thing as being absolutely safe and, and there's no such thing as being absolutely dangerous. Um, but uh, I think when it comes to safety, when it's okay to go back to the doctor's office, um, I think it behooves us as uh, healthcare providers, uh, both as physicians, uh, as hospitals and offices, is to try to make it as safe as possible for patients. Um, and so in doing that, we can um, sort of give patients the confidence that they can, that that, okay, hey, it's okay to go back to the doctor's office. And I think the way that we get back to um, having patients feel like they're safe to come to the doctor's office, have them come out to the doctor's office, is to have clear guidelines uh, for our practices and make sure that they are transparent, uh, make sure that those guidelines are understood by all the various different members uh, of the clinic environment. So everybody uh, from you know the front office staff to the physicians, the people who check them out, um, we're all sort of on the same team. We're all on the same page. We all know what we need to do. So all those, um, all the different measures that we are, we're going to put in place, uh, we have to make sure that they're understood by all the different team members um, and that they're universally practiced. Um, and so those are things like making sure we're masking in all areas, making sure that we're uh, sanitizing our hands. Um, and I remember that when we first started having these discussions at the beginning of the pandemic, how do we bring patients in and how do we make sure that they're confident 
um, is when you clean their hands, make sure, you know, that they see you doing it uh, so that they know that everybody is doing this um, and that they're in a safe environment and that they see everybody with their mask on, not under the nose, but make sure they're actually on. You know, it's surprising how often you see, even as we as physicians, we walk around the hospital and you see somebody wearing that mask sort of off. And and so what that is, is that it's a, it's a sort of a, a signal to, to people, to other patients that, okay, maybe things are a little bit lax and uh, maybe safety standards aren't quite as good as they are. So I think, um, yeah, it is safe to go back to the office. And I think it's, we as physicians uh, should make sure that we're practicing um, sort of these high standards and we're holding ourselves to those standards and holding each other to these standards that we're communicating with patients that when you come into the office, this is what you can expect, that you can expect that all these, all the people who are taking care of you along this chain are making sure that we're keeping everything clean, that we're doing everything to try to make sure that you are safe uh, and that we're practicing all these things universally. Thank you, Dr. Deep. Uh, what you're saying is live, live by example and practice what you preach. I think uh, let's uh, see, if, uh, Dr. Anjum, do you have any comment on uh, the same area? What are the guidelines uh, regarding going, uh, you know, seeing the patient in the office or are there any guidelines? Um, yeah, I think uh, the DEEP has pretty much summed up uh, everything. Again, you know, there are no strict uh, guidelines. I think by this time, it's okay. Um, uh, once again, you know, uh, same thing that uh, DEEP had mentioned. There is no such thing as being completely 100% safe or this is a very dangerous practice. Uh, you just have to weigh your options. One thing uh, that is being suggested again is that, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm not going to go into what Deep has already mentioned, but trying to uh, talk to your patients, communicate to your patients. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, usually they're suggesting that at least 48 hours before, if somebody uh, has an appointment, trying to call them and see if there's been a certain change in their condition, see if they've been exposed, see if they're having any other symptoms. So that way you can triage your patients uh, a little bit uh, better in terms of that. Uh, thank you, Dr. Anjum and Dr. Deep. Uh, talking in the same line, like, you know, patients are coming in to the office. Uh, should we, you know, that's a question I think I'll put it to uh, Deep. Uh, since the patients are coming, should we deal with the possible COVID exposure in our office, uh, like patients and the other patients waiting in the office, uh, from patient to our staff, staff to patient and vice versa? Or are there certain practices which should we be focusing on uh, certain things which are very high risk and we need to avoid it and certain things which we can easily do it. Uh, Dr. Amchandran. So there's uh, lots of different sort of ways that we can think about this. Um, and to go back to, to the question about the guidelines, there's no, um, as Dr. Andrew had mentioned, there's no specific, I mean, there are guidelines, but remember the thing about this pandemic is things have moved so fast that the guidelines um, uh, quickly uh, become obsolete. Um, so, you know, recently there was this thing from the CDC about surfaces and, you know, um, that we don't have to, uh, that the virus doesn't survive in surfaces, it's very low risk, but, um, but that doesn't mean we should stop cleaning surfaces. So we are still cleaning surfaces in all uh, hospital environments that we're still doing that in the office. Um, and so one other thing that's brought up, as you mentioned, is how do we differentiate things between, um, you know, a vaccinated person and a um, and an unvaccinated person. So now we have this idea that 
vaccinated people, uh, as we've known from, as we've seen in the media that, uh, that have been publicized, that uh, the idea that uh, vaccinated people can meet, meet in small groups. Um, and, but um, remember that in the office setting as physicians, uh, we are from multiple different cohorts, multiple different settings, so we still have to mask. Um, and there'll be patients who say, well, I'm vaccinated, do I still need to mask? And, uh, and unfortunately, yes, so the, t- the answer is yes, for the time being, you, you still do need to mask because uh, while it's looking more and more like, you know, people who are wear- wearing masks probably can transmit the virus or have very low risk to transmit the virus, you know, the, the, the research is still ongoing. And I hope that we can ultimately get to the point where uh, vaccinated people do not need to mask, but we're just not there yet. So uh, for the time being, at least in the office setting, yes, uh, we do need to mandate that people still wear masks. Um, in terms of COVID exposures, um, you know, if we, we do as offices need to be prepared and we have been prepared about what do you do when you have, uh, you know, patient uh, calls in and says, well, you know, I was in your office yesterday and I was diagnosed with COVID, um, you know, so what, what needs to happen in the office now? Um, so the thing, the one nice thing about being vaccinated is that uh, you don't really need to do much of anything if, uh, if you've been vaccinated and you have no symptoms. So as a healthcare worker, if I've been exposed to somebody um, and I've been fully vaccinated, I'm not immunocompromised. Um, if I've been vaccinated and I've been exposed to somebody who has COVID, um, I don't really need to do anything. I don't need to quarantine myself. As long as I'm feeling okay, uh, then I'm fine. Um, and that's different than if you've been unvaccinated. So if you have an unvaccinated healthcare worker, a, a nurse, a doctor who's been exposed, then you do need to go through that process of potentially um, quarantining up to 10 days, potentially um, uh, potentially doing testing. Um, so those are things we still need to look at. Uh, so the good news is if you're vaccinated, if you have a patient who's vaccinated, who's been exposed to the virus, um, you can tell them that, uh, you know, if you're exposed and uh, <clears throat> you're feeling fine, then you don't really need to change anything or do anything differently. Um, so that's one positive thing that's come from vaccinations. Uh, we're still wearing the mask, but at least we can go out a bit more freely. Uh, we don't have to worry as much about the, the exposures. And if we do have an exposure as a person who's vaccinated, if you're asymptomatic, then you don't, you do not need to quarantine. Thank you, Dr. Deep. Uh, one of the questions that pop up in the uh, Q&A box, are face masks necessary in open area like a street, parks, or any open area? One of the thing is that if you're in a park where there's nobody in 50 feet distance or 20 feet distance from you, then obviously it doesn't make, uh, it makes sense not to wear the mask. But again, if there are a lot of people around, it's just like you're driving in your lane, but what is the guarantee somebody doesn't intrude in your lane, somebody doesn't break that six feet barrier or four feet barrier. So that is the reason that we still recommend if you're in the park or where there are a lot of public gathering, uh, then we need to uh, work on it. Also, the main thing is that, uh, you know, uh, if you can guarantee that nobody is going to invade your lane, that's a different thing. Uh, I don't know how, I don't know how you guys- uh... Do you have any sense, say? Yeah, so I think this is different for different people. I'd be interested to see what you guys do. Like when I go out, you know, just outside of my house, I go down the street, I go for a walk. Um, I don't wear a mask um, because, you know, I live in a town and there's not a lot of people around. So 
you walk down the street, uh, you know, there's plenty of space if I'm walking on a sidewalk. Um, and if someone's coming the other way, I can walk and go to the other side of the street. Um, so I don't wear a mask when I go out generally. Um, but if I'm out in a, like you said, in a crowded place, like if I was uh, in a outside of a, a crowded place or if I was to go to an outdoor concert, um, then yes, I, I personally, I would. Um, my wife is different. Now, when we go walking, she wears her mask uh, all the time. And so, you know, I, I don't begrudge anybody doing whatever they feel you know, they need to do to feel safe. But I personally, when I go out for a walk and there's nobody around, I don't wear a mask. I don't know about you. Anjum, what, what, what do you do? Uh, no, I think uh, it was weird. Um, just like I think like a few days ago, um, I went out. Uh, we just moved here and uh, there's a nice park just down our street. And I took my son there and we got out of the car and I just forgot to put the mask on. <laughs> and, then I, uh, <laughs> and then we just started walking and we walked a, like a considerable distance. And, and then I was just looking around and I was looking at a lot of people and about 90% of the people in, in that, I mean, it's a, it's a nice park with you know, some walking trail along uh, the lake that we have. And most of the people were actually not wearing a mask. And mm -hmm. I just realized all of a sudden, I was like, something is missing because you're so used mm -hmm. to, you know, putting right. that on once you get out of the car. But most of the people that I've seen uh, have not been wearing it. And I am kind of conflicted. And that's when I started thinking, I was like, should I wear a mask, go back to the car, grab it? Or should I be and just make sure that I don't, you know, come in close contact with anybody? And then, as you said, you know, if I see somebody who's coming my way and I'm too close to them, then I just move out of the way. I, I just don't know what is the right answer, I think, in that sense. Um, again, you know, that, that thought that we are vaccinated also gives you a little peace, I guess, in that sense. You're like, you know, I'm okay. Yes, there is some effectiveness to the vaccine. Uh, of course, taking all your precautions. But this mask part, I think, is still still very debatable and very uh, individual, I think, in that sense. Uh, again, you know, I think as both of you all mentioned, just taking your precautions, making sure that you still do what you're supposed to do. Uh, but I think if you're, you know, not in close contact, if in a big space, open space, then it might be okay to be without the mask. Thank you very much for both of your answers. It seemed like if the road is open, there's no other car, you can drive faster. <laughs> if there's some other car, you need to make sure you protect not only yourself from them, but themselves from you. But let's change a gear a little bit. I think, uh, you know, one of the things is uh, we had a lot of the uh, uh, cases that started coming in for the COVID. The community transmission was high. We went from the uh, in-person uh, to the tele, and then now we're talking about tele to in-person. So I think uh, I'll put this question to Deep, is that what he thinks about the uh, telehealth uh, role. Uh, we were talking about the telemedicine before, there's a shortage of the physician, and what we think is the role of telehealth uh, and back to telehealth to in-person and in-person to telehealth, and what thing, what patient we should think of uh, seeing in-person, what thing, patient we think of telehealth. So I'll put it to deep and then I'll also uh, go back to Dr. Anjum to uh, let him uh, put his thoughts. So um, I've switched, actually I've switched to heli telehealth now. So I say, don't go back to the office. Just stay home and keep doing telehealth. <laughs> I'm kidding. So um, yeah, it's, with the switch is, is uh, one of the things we kind of have to handle carefully. And it's, I, I think it's something that we 
had a lot of experience with, right? Because we did this switch before where we were doing at home. We were doing normal in-office care and then we kind of transitioned to, all right, we got to get more careful with this. And then we switched mostly to telehealth and then people were doing, you know, maybe two thirds telehealth and a third in-person. And now it's kind of switched back again. So, you know, as I talk to more, more and more people, I'm hearing that, you know, they were doing well, you know, maybe three quarters in person, two thirds in person and one third telehealth. And I think that's probably sort of the way things are going to go or at least stay uh, from that uh, transition. Um, so I think we got to handle that uh, flip carefully. Um, and as I mentioned before, you know, part of it is making sure that we're making, we're giving people the confidence to uh, come back. Um, and that we're telling them that it's safe to come, we're telling them that it's uh, safe to come back because we're putting in all these measures. Um, but one of the things we got to do is, I think Anjum also mentioned this, is triaging. Um, so we were doing that before when we were in person and we started to transition, is that we have to triage patients correctly. Uh, we have to screen patients. So those are two things that we got to do properly. So one is uh, when we uh, triage, if someone calls in with symptoms, um, you correctly triage them to say, all right, is this person safe to come into the office um, or should they be seen by a telehealth visit? And there's a couple of things to look at. Number one is um, the safety. Is the patient safe themselves to come into the office? Uh, so do they have symptoms? Could they possibly spread something? Um, could they possibly spread COVID-19 to other people in the office? And the other person is the safety of the office to the patient. So if a patient is high risk, if they have, if they are immunocompromised, um, you know, if they're on steroids. So we see this with the vaccine where people who are immunocompromised don't really build up uh, good, good uh, 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 antibody levels. Um, so sort of the safety of the patient to the office and the safety of the office to the patient. So uh, if patients have a lot of symptoms, those are people that we should triage and telehealth. Um, if the patient has, um, High, if the patient is high risk, you know, immunocompromised um, on uh, steroids, uh, have immunocompromising conditions, those are people we should probably triage to telehealth. Um, and then um, there's also the screening process where we're looking for patient symptoms. Um, so those are things that we have to look at when uh, we're looking at uh, uh, triaging patients to how they should come in or, or whether they should stay at home. Uh, before I go to Dr. Anjum, Dr. Deep, I think I'd like to ask you a follow-up question, which uh, pop up in the Q&A uh, mm -hmm. chat box. Uh, the attendee have a question. We have a program with home visits and outpatient clinic visit with a long hauler protocol. Telehealth is used to follow up, but we have a, had a lot of technical issue with our tablets, computer, phones, et cetera. Is there a system out there to partner with that supply the technology? You just mentioned that you switched to telehealth. I think if I do from home, I think I have a, too many honeydews to do from at home. So I'll rather run out of home. But uh, how would you respond to that? Um, so I would, uh, so I, I, I don't want to say, I want to be agnostic and not uh, promote one particular product over another. Um, so there's lots of different telehealth platforms. One thing to remember um, is that uh, during this pandemic, that uh, the HIPAA rules have not been waived, but they are sort of turning a blind eye to HIPAA compliance in terms of telehealth platforms. Um, so uh, platforms that were traditionally not considered HIPAA compliant, like for, for example, uh, uh, Zoom, 
um, or uh, I'm not sure that FaceTime is HIPAA compliant, but you can use more common uh, uh, platforms that were not necessarily considered HIPAA compliant before. You can use those platforms now. Um, and the government has said that they will not enforce the HIPAA rules if you're doing it, if you're, um, if you're doing things in the interest of the patient. So you can feel free to try a mul multitude of different platforms. You don't have to stick to one. And even if it's not necessarily HIPAA compliant, uh, you can do FaceTime, you can uh, do uh, Google Meet. Um, I personally, I use uh, Doximity. Uh, Doxy.me is another one. Um, but uh, I don't know that there's necessarily one perfect platform. It's really which one the patient can use. And this is a, a problem with telehealth. It's a good, it's a, this is a good point to make that a lot of my patients, like, uh, you know, if you have a lot of patients above 65, a lot of Mer Medicare age patients, a lot of them just, they cannot do it. They can't uh, log in. A lot of them don't have emails. A lot of older folks or uh, folks uh, uh, that uh, can't afford um, a cell phone or cell phone plan. So those are things that you also have to uh, plan for is that, not everybody can do telehealth because of challenges with the technology or because of financial constraints that they just can't uh, afford a platform like that. So those are things that you definitely have to look, look at when we do, when we're transitioning uh, to telehealth, telehealth and away from telehealth. Uh, thank you, Dr. Deep. I think uh, Dr. Anjumal asked the same question, uh, you know, uh, your thoughts about the telehealth. And also I'll ask you another question that what is the current state of the insurance coverage? Because obviously you can see the patient all day long. If the third party doesn't pay you, it doesn't, uh, you know, uh, when rubber meets the road, it would not happen. So what is your thought on that? No, I think uh, Deep is, is the expert. I'm not going to go, <laughs> you know, uh, go into more details regarding that. But he's, he's right. I think, you know, we've come across several of these um, uh, platforms that are available out there. Um, some of the online approved uh, uh, websites or platforms that he's mentioned uh, are also there. But again, with the challenges, it becomes a little tough. And we've all, I think, been through it that after, you know, seeing patients during this pandemic, um, for a few months, it was good for, for us because we could at least see these patients, evaluate these patients, give them the advice. And for them, it was good because, you know, if they needed a refill on their medication, some important issue came up, we could discuss it. But after a while, it has started to feel that, you know, we can't just keep on doing uh, televisits all the time. We needed to see these patients in person. So I think that's another challenge. And then uh, that same complaint came from the patients too, that they did not feel that they were getting that same sort of attention or it wasn't what we expect with a face-to-face -face visit. Um, so yeah, the challenges are there. I think it's going to be a slow process uh, where some of the visits will still be televisits and uh, most of the visits uh, finally are going to be the face-to-face -face visits that we've done previously. Um, regarding the insurance coverage, uh, it has been covered. It will, uh, uh, you know, centers for uh, Medicare and other uh, private insurances, they cover the audio visits as well as the tele or, uh, you know, video visits. Uh, you get paid uh, differently for those visits, for the audio visits. Uh, the, uh, the visits are based on uh, time. So there's three levels uh, for the visits, five to 10 minutes, 11 to 20 minutes, and then 21 to 30 minutes. And they're paid accordingly. Uh, the tele, uh, 
video visits, on the other hand, are paid as if you're doing a face-to-face -face encounter. So if you're using some of the televideo platforms, whether that's FaceTime, Google Meet, or Doxy, um, and you, you know, seeing patients through that, then you can bill just how you would in a face-to-face -face encounter. And this would continue. Uh, again, you know, we don't know exactly how long, uh, but till uh, you know, um, the pandemic is there, the definition of pandemic uh, remains, uh, they will continue to pay for it. Um, and the same thing has been uh, in the hospitals as well, that people who have uh, COVID and are uninsured, uh, there's a different entity uh, that has taken the responsibility. So the physicians do get paid for those uninsured COVID patients uh, that are being admitted and taken care of in the hospitals as well. So yes, you get paid for your hard work. It just depends on uh, what you're doing and what would be the best solution for you and for your patients. Thank you, Dr. Anjum. I think uh, the changing the gear a little bit, I think uh, we go into the traveling mode. So I think, you know, we'll talk about the global travel, travel to the medical conference. So my question is for Deep, uh, what, what is the guideline uh, if you think of going to the medical conference or some other places where there is a gathering? Are there any guidelines available from CDC or any agency if you know of? So, uh... What the CDC has said recently is that uh, we can now start to travel. Um, they recommend uh, continuing to mask uh, when you're in public places. Um, the only thing that, I think the things that are significantly changed from what we were doing before in terms of mask, universal masking and universal cleaning is that number one is that vaccinated people can travel and you do not have to quarantine when traveling within the United States, either before leaving or upon arrival. Uh, number two, they don't need a COVID-19 test. Um, and that's according to the CDC. Now you may still run into you know, um, a company that says, okay, when you come here, you still need to get a test. But at least according to CDC guidelines, they, they don't uh, specify that you need to um, uh, either quarantine or uh, get a test for travel within the United States, uh, as long as you're asymptomatic uh, and, you've been, uh, and you've been vaccinated. And then upon, you know, when you're out and about, you don't need to isolate if you're exposed to somebody who uh, has, has COVID-19. Uh, in terms of travel, uh, they, they recommend, they say that travel is okay, uh, but they have said that, uh, you know, they, they would uh, avoid unnecessary travel. So um, take that uh, to me what, what, it, what it is, uh, what, what, you, what you will. Um, they recommend not going into large crowds. Um, so that would mean things like, you know, um, you know, a medical conference would probably be, you know, it's an inside event uh, with air conditioning. So that would make that sort of a, a relatively higher risk uh, endeavor. Um, you know, chest is coming up uh, later in October. I'm hoping that those things would be uh, that by that time we've gotten towards universal immunity and, and that we can, uh, the CDC can sort of lax some of those guidelines. But that's something that, you know, we're going to have to continue to watch. It's sort of a day-to-day -day thing. Um, if you're running a practice or traveling, that's something that uh, you should continue to watch and log on to the CDC website to stay abreast of because things are changing day-to-day -day and hopefully for they're changing for the better. Although, you know, Anjum talked about some of these mutant strains that we're seeing. Um, so yeah, that's that's something we're gonna have to stay abreast of. Thank you, Deep. Uh, one of the thing is like, you know, talking about the chess, they did modify, if you look at the venue, it was supposed to be in Vancouver, 
but now it's going to be in uh, Orlando. One of the thing is it's going to be hybrid this year. Some people, if they want, they can attend in person and some folks can attend uh, by the uh, telemord uh, or a webinar. One of the thing is that they have selected a venue which is pretty big that whoever is attending in person, they can try to ensure that, you know, we do the physical distancing and follow all the public health measure. Uh, now, let me ask a question to Dr. Anjum. What about the domestic and international travel? I, I know there has been some changes uh, lately, which has been implemented for the international travel, especially when you're coming back. Uh, can you uh, uh, take on that question? Yes, I think, uh, you know, again, you know, domestic travel is, is different. International travel, um, they've divided um, some of the countries into different colors, uh, especially UK has come up with a very nice uh, strategy. Um, so they've, uh, you know, assigned a different uh, sort of risk category uh, to certain countries. And if you are traveling uh, from that country, then uh, the policies uh, for that risk category will have to be uh, followed accordingly. Um, some of the countries uh, will require you to uh, quarantine uh, regardless of, uh, you know, however you're feeling, whether you're symptomatic or asymptomatic. Uh, and some of the nations are not doing it. So it just depends uh, geographically. Uh, what you're doing and where you're traveling to. Uh, a lot of people, I think, are um, trying to change the way they used to travel, I think, instead of taking like, you know, short vacations, they're taking probably a little longer vacation. They're trying to stay in one area. So if you're, uh, you know, going to a place, you try to stay in that place and kind of roam around and explore that uh, place sort of in its entirety, rather than going to multiple places. Um, so, you know, Airbnbs and things of that sort are gaining a lot of popularity because people just stay stay put in one location and then explore that uh, area all over the, uh, you know, uh, that place. So, so it just depends, I think, uh, what, uh, you know, what your travel plans are. Again, you know, it is not recommended that if you don't need to travel, then uh, definitely don't travel. But uh, if it comes to that, then um, some of those uh, precautions will need to be taken and you'll have to follow the guidelines that have been established by different countries uh, for travel based on the risk category. Thank you, Dr. Anjum. So it means that if you don't want to travel, don't need to travel, don't go there. But if you're going there, just try to make sure, uh, go in a place, don't try to go in a multiple uh, country tour, just uh, restrict yourself to as minimum as possible. Uh, one of the thing is that uh, the question is coming back to Deep is about the telehealth. I think, you know, since he's doing the telehealth, we see a lot of variants coming in. Now B117, which is a very, very prevalent variant in our country. Uh, we are also seeing some South African variant, uh, California variant is there. In the view of the variant coming in, um, and there is some uh, concern that the vaccine may not be able to protect. But what we have seen some very good result with the Pfizer vaccine for the South African variant, very effective. Uh, the vaccines were effective for the UK variant. Uh, if there's some other variant pops up or keep on popping up, uh, do you think that uh, depending on the community transmission or variant coming in, would it be advisable again to switch from in-person, uh, go to a lot of people uh, to telehealth? So Deep, you want to, uh, comment on that sure so yeah it's uh it's it's tough with these variants because you know we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel um with uh, covid uh now that we have the vaccine um, i think we're hopeful that the the vaccine is going to work and, and there we've seen 
we've seen uh, meaningful data that the the vaccines, at least the you know Moderna and Pfizer, appear to be effective for a lot of these variants. Um, and so, you know, the, if we can vaccinate as many people as possible, then hopefully we won't have as many of the variants or and the emergence of new variants. But I think we have to be ready to flip the switch again. Um, it may not be a national thing. Hopefully it's not a national thing, but there may be times where, you know, we're seeing this in Michigan now where you're having flare-ups in certain areas and you have to sort of flip the switch back and say, okay, maybe it's time we didn't bring people into the office again or brought people less people in the office again. Um, and some of this is out of concern for patient safety. A lot of it is uh, what we're seeing in Michigan is out of concern for, you know, preserving the, uh, the hospital beds, uh, preserving the hospital infrastructure. Uh, and so the, you're not bringing in a lot of, um, um, you know, and not bring a lot of uh, uh, surgeon, surgeries and uh, elective surgeries and procedures into the hospital, just so you're maintaining bed capacity. So there's going to be, there's going to continue to be flare-ups like this as long as uh, COVID is out there. Um, I don't know for how long that's going to continue for, but it's going to be there and we have to continue to be vigilant. Uh, we have to continue to be ready to flip the switch back and to look at, all right, maybe we got to go back to sort of hibernation mode with our health system um, and start going back to telehealth. So those are things that uh, we're going to continue to have to deal with. Um, and so even when COVID is gone, it's, it's not going to be gone, gone. Uh, we still have to stay vigilant and keep watching, keep watching out for it. Thank you, Deep. There's a question in the uh, chat box. I think there have been several questions coming in and I've been trying to address, uh, trying to you know just keep the flow in the same direction. There's a question now, uh, what have you heard about how long antibody will, will last after vaccine? Is there an antibody test that differentiate, uh, that is different than what we already have? And also uh, the thing is that the people who have a vaccine, uh, they, got the COVID three months uh, prior. I actually has, have seen people who have had the vaccine got COVID after receiving vaccine greater than three months prior. One of the thing I can tell you that, you know, both Pfizer and Moderna, uh, they are following the patients who have received the vaccine and they have come out and said that up to six months, their vaccine is validated. A lot of the people are thinking that the vaccine is validated are effective only for six months, which is not true because this is a new vaccine. So they're still tracking in and hope is that it will last longer than maybe one and a half or two years. Now, people who have got the uh, COVID after vaccine, most of the vaccines are not 100%, whether you have a 90% efficacy, 82% efficacy or 95% efficacy, it does mean that people still can get the COVID. But one thing is that all the vaccine have been uh, shown to be efficacious in preventing serious illness like hospitalization and death. Uh, Dr. Anjum, you want to add anything on that uh, response? No, I think that's uh, you. You've uh, given a good summary. I mean, some some studies are even suggesting up to eight months, but I think generally it's varying between somewhere five to eight months. Uh, uh, you know, the immunity that they're saying should last at least after uh, getting the vaccination. Again, you know, things are ever changing, strains are coming in, uh, viruses changing. And again, you know, how we know with the, with the coronaviruses, corona means this, the, the crown. So, you know, that's what they are. It's a crown and, it, you know, they, they generate these spike proteins. So, you know, there's 
it's it's very hard to keep a track of these things and say you know what that this variation has caused this sort of infection unless you're able to track these spike proteins and again you know i think one of the concern that people have is that you know my um uh, my IgM is positive or my IgG is positive. Again, these antibodies, uh, you know, if you have been infected with COVID, the only time that you can get these antibodies is through infection. The only way you would be able to differentiate is, you know, what kind of infection is through through those spike proteins where you'll be able to see if there's any variation. So again, the data is ever-changing. Uh, still, the uh, the companies are... are uh, claiming that most of these strains are accounted for. Uh, again, they're not 100%. So as you said, some of the infections will be expected, but hope is that they don't get very uh, serious. But again, as I mentioned initially, that these strains are known to be more contagious, so keep taking the precautions. Thank you, Dr. Anjum. Uh, one of the thing is that, you know, changing the gear a little bit, uh, we talk about the mental health. 19.7% of the adult in US suffer from mental health. 9.7% of the children in the US suffered from mental health. 60% of them are not having any access to healthcare. That was before the COVID. Now we published a couple of papers and that with the COVID, uh, the number of the mental health issue, whether you take anxiety, the depression, the PTSD is increasing. And people who had the COVID, they also have a high incidence of PTSD. So what, what would you say about that? No, definitely. That's a that's a great point. I think um, we've been seeing in our practice, uh, at least, you know, talking to our patients who just with the fear of having COVID, uh, they get so anxious. People who've had COVID, we've noticed that when they're in the hospital, even though that they're doing okay uh, with, with their numbers, uh, they just start getting very anxious uh, with anxiety. They start hyperventilating uh, and then just things go south from there onwards. So uh, just, you know, hearing the name that I have COVID uh, creates that sort of anxiety. And again, you know, we've been dealing with mental health problems uh, for different reasons in our community uh, all over the nation. Um, COVID has made it worse for sure. Um, some things that I think that are suggested that you should do is number one, I think try to limit the interaction with social media. Um, I'm not saying that you should not read about the news. I'm not saying that you should not watch television. You should not be up to date, but try to limit it in the sense that don't uh, let it rule your life. Uh, don't just like sit and watch every single thing. Uh, there's uh, tons of information there. We've even talked about this thing uh, previously in our uh, chest uh, physician journal article that what we call is the COVID uh, infodemic. Uh, which means that there's just so much information out there and a lot of that information is misinformation. It creates unnecessary anxiety, unnecessary trauma. So try to, you know, look up validated information and don't go overboard. Uh, number two, I think it's important to talk to uh, your uh, colleagues, uh, people that you trust, uh, your friends, your family. If you have any issues, if you're having any problems, do talk to them, do explain what you're going through. Uh, there is help out there. People can help you. And, you know, this is a situation where families come together, where friends come together and they help each other out. So I think that's very important to have a good uh, support system uh, so that way you can talk and address these issues. Uh, all of us go through it. There is nothing wrong with it. It's very natural. Um, and again, you know, as you said, COVID has made it worse. So, so those are the two big things. And again, you know, remembering that there are uh, services available, uh, you know, suicide hotline, 
you know, other uh, issues with, you know, psychiatric illnesses. There's so much help out there that I think it's better to seek help rather than, you know, hide it inside and then suffer in the longer run. Thank you very much, Dr. Anjum. I think before I go into uh, some of the more questions and get your feedback, I, I just want to take this opportunity to thank all of the frontline workers, again, from the bottom of the heart, because what you're mentioning is what we have all gone through. We have seen people dying like never before. We have seen people getting on the ventilator and it was very tough to get them liberated from the mechanical ventilator. Uh, our hearts goes to a uh, healthcare worker who have lost their life while trying to save the life. More than 3,000 healthcare worker in this country has lost their life. So I think I'd like to thank all of them who are in the front line, all of the people whose life have been lost while trying to save the life of the other. Their life has not gone in vain. We'll just continue our fight with the COVID and we'll try to make sure that uh, we live up to their hard work and dedication which they have shown. And uh, our thanks again go to all the frontline worker, uh, especially pulmonary critical care and any physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, and even custodian worker, our hats off to them. Again, I think, you know, now what, uh, in the interest of the time, I think we'll, I'll take one more question and then I'll try to have the panelists give their closing remarks in case if we miss something. Uh, one of the question is uh, very interesting. And I think uh, uh, everyone want to know that, uh, but there's no right answer. Uh, the question is, when do you expect us to get our life back to normal? Uh, I'll start with Dr. Anjum Deep, and then I'll uh, give my comments to you. Very tough one, a very tough one. <laughs> Again, you know, I think, as you said, nobody has a clear answer. Just about, you know, it's about just about that time where we were saying that, you know, things are going to be a little bit better we start seeing these variants. Uh, but hopefully, again, I, I think we still have to be hopeful. That's what keeps us alive. Uh, we have seen that we have progressed. We have learned new strategies. This has been a uh, life, you know, sort of changing experience. I have never, uh, you know, experienced anything like it. None of us have. I mean, seeing so many uh, ARDS patients at the same time doing so many procedures, taking care of them. So I think... Uh, Things will change. When are they going to get back completely to be, you know, normal before, you know, what we had before this pandemic? I am not sure. And I'm not even sure if this is maybe the new normal. This is probably how the world is going to be, that we'll always be told to take some precautions that will always be in place. And uh, the hope is that, you know, we get the strength to just go along, push along and take care of uh, our patients and help people. Uh, Deep. True. Uh, I'm glad you went first on that, Andrew. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. What's What's normal? I mean, what's uh, is this the new normal? Um, I, I, so yeah, I was. Uh, I'm hoping that, you know, like you said, as we transition, but who knows with the variants. Um, so I think you just we have to be vigilant, and uh, we kind of have to just kind of you know kind of let go a little bit. Say okay, uh, we just kind of roll roll with it and do whatever we can. Um, it's interesting to think about what's going to happen with the masks. You know, is that going to be, become the new normal? I mean, you know, every winter we go through this flu epidemic and we lose tens of thousands of people. And are we now going to say, you know, is that acceptable? Um, uh, or do we mask as physicians? Do we all do universal masking again? Is that going to become a new normal every winter? 
Um, so that's, that's, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. But those are interesting things that we're going to have to look at uh, down the road. Uh, thank you, Deep. Uh, one of the things is I'll, I'll try to share my thoughts too, because there has been a lot of things coming out from the WHO and the other nations. One of the thing is we know that the vaccines do work. And to create the herd immunity, I think you have to get 70 to 80% of the people, either they get antibody from infection or they get the vaccination. But the thing is that since the whole world is very tightly connected, to get uh, control on the COVID, it means you need to have a global herd immunity. And if you look at it, there's a real disparity between the developed country, uh, the amount of vaccination which they're getting versus the developing country. There are so many countries who cannot get their hands on vaccination, even to uh, vaccinate the, uh, their front line or the high risk population. The COVAX, which is a, a group you know, through the United Nations and all that have got together, and they are going to help get 20% of the vaccine need for those countries, and they're still struggling to get it. So I think uh, this is a time where the world needs to act together. If you want to see the uh, light at the end of the tunnel, uh, I think this is a global issue. Uh, this is not going to be the, uh, the last pandemic which we have seen. There are more to come, and this is a test of the time how together we can work better. And hopefully if we can work together, we can quickly see the uh, light at the end of the tunnel. We are almost uh, down to the time. There are some more questions, but what I'll do is we are left with almost three minutes. So I'll let uh, Deep give some final comment and then Dr. Anjum, and then we'll uh, uh, close the session. I know you all uh, have to go back to the work. Uh, Deep. All right, well, uh, thanks to uh... Salim, Dr. Sarani for hosting this. Thanks to Chess for hoping, hosting this very important topic. Um, I would think it just my final thought is that, you know, it's important to get our practices back up and running. Uh, we've seen, you know, a little uptick in mortality from non-COVID diseases now. Um, some of those were um, uh, mental diseases that, uh, that uh, Anjum had mentioned, but other things like lung cancer. Um, so it's important to get those patients back into, into our offices getting them back into the system and re restart uh, care on those patients to sort of prevent this sort of increasing uh, uh, mortality that we're seeing among non-COVID patients from our usual diseases that we usually treat. Thank you, Deep. And Dr. Anjum? Uh, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Chest, again, uh, for hosting this uh, important uh, webinar. Um, thanks, Deep, for being my partner. Thank you, Dr. Sarani, for moderating it. And, um, you know, once again, I think I agree with uh, whatever you all have said and um, just hope that, um, you know, at some point in time, we, we can control this disease. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Anjum. Thank you, Dr. Ramchandran. And thank you, Chest, for providing us with an opportunity. And uh, thank you to the audience who have uh, sent their questions, attended, and took a one hour out of their uh, precious time to join us. Uh, I'll pass it back to the chess moderator and thank you very much. You all have a good afternoon and evening.